I think one of the great mistakes that a lot of entrepreneurs in particular make is that they invest everything into the one thing. So if that one thing does not pan out, then who are they? Like if you invested everything into the notion that you're a successful entrepreneur and your business fails, like that is an existentialist crisis, right? And it goes straight to the core of the ego and it really shakes it because there's nothing else there. Your entire identity is wrapped up in this notion of being a successful business person. That just seems to me like bad risk management. We've talked a ton on the podcast about the pitfalls of the education system. Expensive, excessive, rote memorization, and anything but interesting or effective. That's why I'm excited to tell you guys about our partnership with Brilliant.org. Whether you're a hobbyist or hardcore pro, into programming Python, learning algebra, exploring quantum computing, neural networks, or just want to improve your logic like me and be the next Sherlock, Brilliant's the place to go to uplevel yourself in science, math, computer science, and have fun in the process. Yes, it's actually fun. One of my goals with this podcast is to inspire more folks to pursue their dreams and passions to build a better world for all of us. I can't think of a better way to do that than by helping you guys, helping more people learn the skills, the tricks of the trade to accomplish incredible things. That's arguably the entirety of Brilliant's mission. To support the podcast and learn more about Brilliant, go to brilliant.org disruptors and sign up for free. The first 200 people that go to that link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. Again, that's brilliant.org disruptors. Support us by supporting them, and you know what? It'll be supporting yourself in the process. You can learn a ton, have some fun, and just maybe learn the skills you need to do something incredible. I want to take a quick time out to give you guys a personal update. Many of you know I've been working on my dream of becoming a sci-fi author. Well, now I've got a couple sci-fi books and techno thrillers coming out soon. Do you want to help me and join my advanced beta reader team and get free or deeply discounted copies of my upcoming books to review and help me improve the stories? If you're a fan of Michael Crichton, Daniel Suarez, A Good Dystopian, or Epic Fantasy, you'll love my writing. If you join and share your feedback, it would mean the world for me in my writing career. Seriously, I'd really appreciate it. If you visit mattward.io slash book and enter your details, then you'll be notified and occasionally selected to pre-read some of my books before everyone else. Share your thoughts, work directly with me to help me make the story better, and much more. I want to give you guys an epic thanks for listening to the podcast, especially for folks interested in the books. And again, if you want to get my books before they come out, before anyone, and help me make this writing career a success, please visit mattward.io slash book to join and get your free early copies. And now, let's get on with the program. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. You come to the Disruptors for awesome folks creating incredible change. Today, we got a heck of an interview planned for you guys. David Hannemeyer Hansen. He's the creator of Ruby on Rails, the co-founder and CTO of Basecamp, and the best-selling co-author of Rework and Remote, both business books that he wrote about their business, Basecamp, and how they were able to bootstrap it to extreme success without compromising on anything. He's a blogger, been featured on The Tim Ferriss Show, and a Le Mans WEC class-winning race car driver. We go everywhere on this episode with someone who's done it all, seen it all, and has an incredible perspective to add. In today's episode, we'll discuss why capitalism can't solve society's biggest problems, what gives David hope and fear when it comes to privacy and big tech, the epic issues with education in America and why we're all effed, speaking of being effed, why U.S. healthcare is so bad, and what we could learn from the Europeans, where the U.S. went wrong from a socialist perspective, why being a well-rounded person makes entrepreneurs and employees better, and David's thoughts on Trump and transforming government. This one's one where we drop a bunch of insight, F-bombs, and more. I know you guys are going to enjoy it, but that said, if you've got kids in the car, I wouldn't recommend this one for kids. And just to have an edit retraction on one of the things I said in a past episode, I said The Guardian was funded by the British government, just like the BBC. That is not true. The BBC is, but The Guardian is not. We had a listener write in and wanted to clarify that. But now, without further ado, I give you DHH, David Hannemeyer Hansen. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. 
So David, I know you said you wanted to talk about or focus on why it doesn't need to be crazy at work, but I want to, before we get into that, dive into racing. So you're a race car driver, you've done Le Mans, you've done quite a bit. You, you seem to have an adrenaline junkie side. What's the, what's the story? <laughs> sure. So for racing, the funny thing is I didn't actually get my driver's license until I was 25 years old. It wasn't actually until I moved from Copenhagen, Denmark to Chicago, Illinois, US, that I got my first car. So I was certainly a late bloomer in the automotive world, you could say, but I'd been playing a lot of video games. And one of my favorite genres of video games was racing video games. I played pretty much all racing video games up through the 80s and the 90s and 2000s. So when I finally got my own car and realized, hey, I also like this in real life, I quickly made up for lost time. I got in a race car two years after I got my license, found that that was a lot of fun, spent a couple of years just honing my skills at the local track, and then jumped straight on to a track to go get to the 24 hours of Le Mans. I had long had a sort of racing idol. The guy who's won the 24 hours of Le Mans the most time in history, nine times, is a man named Tom Christensen, who's a Dane, who I watched win his first race, I think it was in 99 or 97, and then just dominate that race through the 2000s. And there's just something uniquely appealing about seeing your countrymen be able to do that. Hey, Denmark is a small country. We're what, five and a half million people. There aren't sort of that many disciplines where you see just a bunch of Danes kicking ass, right? Simply, that's just the math of the fact that like five million people, I mean, Chicago is twice the size of that if you take the greater Chicagoland area, right? And there aren't exactly just like tons of people from the greater Chicagoland area who's internationally renowned race car drivers. So the fact that there was this Dane, Tom Christensen, who was just dominating this race, which I thought was the most interesting, appealing race in the world, really was an inspiration. So when I finally got to the point where, hey, I had my driver's license, I'd had a taste of race car driving, I had the funds to do it, because let's be honest, I mean, the only way you're getting to the 24 hours of Le Mans as a race car driver who started in their mid-20s and are now trying to go professional is by you, you spend a lot of money. So it required sort of a number of factors to be present. And one of those factors was to have a business that was doing well enough that um, uh, I could kind of pay for that show. So all those things came together. And then in 2012, I did the 24 Hours of Le Mans for the first time. And I've done the race eight times. I've won it in class once. I've been on the podium four times. I've been on the overall podium. I've been disqualified. Um, I've had my engine blow up in the middle of the night. I've tried the whole thing. But um, racing has just been for the past, let's say, 10, 12 years, a major part of my life in terms of a serious hobby outside of work that really had nothing to do with work. And this is one of those things we've been big at at Basecamp and one of the foundational ideas behind it doesn't have to be crazy at work is that you can be more than one thing. You're not defined by what you do for money, right? Like you're not defined by what your job is. And you're actually better off if you don't let your job define you. You're better off if you constrain your job to being, for example, 40 hours a week, as we advocate in, in the book, because then you have nights and weekends free. If, if I hadn't taken a, a couple of years of spending every Saturday and Sunday at the track, no, I wouldn't have become um, sort of skilled enough to drive a race car that I could compete at the 24 hours of Le Mans. And that has been the same factor in, in other aspects of, of my life and, and even more satisfying in many regards, the lives of everyone who works with me at base camp. So we're not just about that one thing. I'm not interested in just being the world's best programmer, the world's best business person. That is is that level of specialization has just zero appeal and purchase on my aspirations and ambitions for life. Which is interesting because it's like you are and you aren't a pedal to the metal guy, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't sort of invest everything. I don't put all my eggs in one basket, neither in terms of economics, nor in terms of time, nor in terms of ego. I think one of the great mistakes that a lot of entrepreneurs in particular make is that they invest everything into the one thing. So if that one thing does not pan out, then who are they? Like if you invested everything into the notion that you're a successful entrepreneur and your business fails, like that is an existentialist crisis. 
right? And it goes straight to the core of the ego and it really shakes it because there's nothing else there. Your entire identity is wrapped up in this notion of being a successful business person. That just seems to me like bad risk management. Like if Basecamp went out of business tomorrow, that would be a hit. I would be sad. I really like working at Basecamp. But you know what? It would not be the end of the world. I would continue to write Ruby on Rails. I would continue to write books. I'd continue to advocate on Twitter. I'd continue to drive a race car. I'd continue to take photos, photography. Having a multifaceted, well, I don't want to call it personality because that's not really what it is, but set of interests sets you free from the fear that the one thing you've put it all into is going to go away. Because what I found is that the people who do that, who invest everything in the one thing, they are anxious people because they know that they are walking a tightrope. And if they fall off that tightrope, there's nothing there to catch them. There is no safety net. And this is particularly true when you talk about the stereotype of the modern entrepreneur, who is this person who willfully puts in 80, 100, 120 hours a week, who brags about the fact that they have no time for exercise. They have no time for friends. They have no time for proper eating. They don't have time for sleep. They just have time for the mission, right? And when that mission then fails, well, what do they wake up to? The fact that they have sort of are in poor shape, in poor health, in poor sleep, in poor sort of stance with perhaps their friends and family because they haven't invested the time in them. That to me is actually, that is the scary thing because I know I have those tendencies in me too. I too can get wrapped up in a pursuit. I too can get single-minded and single-focused. And that's, whenever I feel those tendencies in myself and I've been on a bend like that for a while, I, I get scared of that. And I pull back and I go like, do you know what? Life is more than any one thing. Do you think people ever reach that absolute pinnacle without having it be only the one thing though? So do you think the top 1% of the 1% on entrepreneurs, on creatives, etc.? They've got to be a little crazy. Yes, and I have no interest to be amongst them. I don't want to be the 1% of the 1%. Because you know what? Getting just into the top 5% of a hobby, a pursuit, an interest in business, that is A, so much easier. It is, for me at least, completely gratifying to be operating in the top 5% of, say, race car driving or programming or business or whatever. You get all the spoils. You get 99.995% of the spoils in terms of satisfaction and, and all these other things. To be truly the number one, the only person who stands above all else, yes, you need to sacrifice everything. Why is that your goal? Why would that want to be anyone's goal? Like, given the fact that, that you can get all these spoils from all these different disciplines at the same time and you can compound them without going completely bananas and single-minded into one thing. That, to me, is just, that is the true beauty of, uh, of this, right? To be able to balance more than one thing on your plate and do it in a way where they all give you gratification. I think this notion that you're not a success unless you slay everyone else, unless you conquer everything, unless you amass all of it, is really a defect of the human condition that unfortunately afflicts quite a lot of people and unfortunately is promoted as though it was a virtue that no, it's good to be the one that slays everyone else. And I just go like, yeah, no, no, thanks. Not interested. I would totally agree. I think your philosophy is much more a healthy way of looking at it. How much of that do you think is based off of the fact that you lived in Denmark growing up, that you have the, the European mindset, so to speak? I think it's a fair part of it. I think a fair part of it is having grown up in a society where if you looked at just the socioeconomical, socioeconomical levels of that society, we were not even the middle, right? Like at our family, we were sort of towards the bottom. And still, I couldn't really tell. For the longest time, I could not tell because the experience I had of my childhood and the resources and opportunities that were available to me as someone in on the lower step of the, the ladder, they were almost indistinguishable from someone on the higher steps of that ladder because Denmark is a social democratic state that takes care of all its citizens, regardless of whether they're born wealthier or born a certain uh, state in life, right? I could still go to a great school. I still got all the health care that I needed. I had problems with my ears when I was a kid and I need multiple surgeries and I needed all sorts of things. The whole notion that I've come to, unfortunately, be a spectator to in the U.S., that you can simply grow up and, for example, not be able to afford health care, that has, was just such an alien concept. It was never in my mind. And thus, I grew up with this sense that like life can be great. 
across the whole spectrum. There is not this existential fear that if I end up working a sort of, I don't know, a normal job, making a normal wage, that that is some travesty that I need to propel my entire being towards avoiding because otherwise my life is going to be uh, irreparably damaged. I think just gave me a, a confidence that, do you know what? If success happens, that's great. If success doesn't happen, that's also great because you know what? The difference between the two, they're not, that's not where the material parts of life lies. Now, I completely understand how that is a utterly foreign perspective from an American vantage point where that is not true at all, where the <laughs> lived experience for, for someone at the lower rungs of the ladder is so foreign and separate and different that I can completely understand this impulse that, well, I got to I got to fight with everything I have or die trying. So I just didn't have that. And I think that is one of the reasons when you look at sort of broad happiness studies comparing European countries to to the U.S., for example, European countries are just so much happier because the outcomes work for so many more people. Like when I first got to the U.S., I, I thought like, wow, isn't this amazing? It's such a land of contrast and like has the best of everything, has the worst of everything. And that seemed appealing to me in the narrow scope of my vision when I first arrived, because I was already on the track to having access to the best of everything. Right. But when you look at it as a whole society, you go like, how many people have access to the best of everything in this country? And you just go like, Jesus, that's a shockingly poor percentage. Like it is working for so few people. And then you compare that to I lived in Spain for 10 years. Uh, Spain also has a uh, better life expectancy than the U.S. They have uh, great uh, scores on general life satisfaction and happiness and so forth. Denmark, uh, many years in a row, topped the sort of happiness index and, and so on and so forth. And I have all sorts of issues with how they report those things. But even if you take it as a broad concept, just this is working for a lot of people. And yeah, I think that this is just one of those things I've discovered as I lived in the U.S. now for, what, 15 years for, I mean, I don't know, the first half of that or at least the thir first third of that. I thought like, no, this is great. I actually, when I left Denmark, I had this idea that like, oh, man, the Danes just don't get it. They're holding back people. They're like, what about excellence? Right. And then you arrive to a country that puts it all on black 24 and, and asks everyone to spin the wheel. And anyone who doesn't end up on black 24 is a total fucking loser. Right. In the sort of public image of it. And anyone who lands on Black 24 heralded as this genius who just like, oh man, aren't they awesome? And I've just, I've grown tired of that. And the best part about it is your, if your parents are rich, you get more roles. And if they're not, then you get less roles. It's, um, it seems like we're optimizing for exactly the wrong thing. I think we're, I think we're definitely on the same page. Why are you guys based in Malibu? Why are you based in California? It sounds like you're very much pro-Europe. I would definitely concur with most all of your points. Part of it is because that original statement that the U.S. has the best of everything and, and the worst of everything. I mean, not in a literal sense, right? But in a in a lived experience as, as someone uh, from a, a Western country, I mean, I think that's pretty true, right? And you know what? Malibu, and I've, I've been all over the world. Malibu is just when you can pick anywhere in terms of natural beauty and, and the water and the climate and, and so forth is the best place to live for us, for me, for my sentiments and for what I like. I lived in Denmark for 25 years. And do you know what? I, I speak a lot of nice things about Denmark now, but I also still remember what it's like for the sun to rise at uh, 9.30 and to set at 3.30. And do you know what? That was not good for me either. It's good for some people and they sort of respond to that, right? And then I lived in Spain for about 10 years and, and I love so many things about Spain. In fact, we looked seriously into living Spain full-time for a while. And then we had kids and realized that the way the school system was set up there uh, and the options we had available for where we wanted to live, they just weren't great. And now we live in Malibu and there's this hippy dippy school out here that really corresponds to how I think childhood should be and, and my views on everything from homework to collaboration to, to all the other facts of, of early childhood education. It's just a, a really good fit. So, I mean, in some ways it, it's, sort of just that selfish instinct, right? Like, hey, things turned out well for me, given the fact that they've turned out so well. And, and I and we as a family can pick wherever we want to be. Malibu is a good place. So it sounds like based off of your background, based off of your interests, that you would change a lot about the education system. I'm curious what you yep. would change. So let me give you a magic wand. What would you change and why? Well, first, I would put people who care about the kids in charge of the design. Uh, Alfie Cohen is a great author on 
childhood education who heavily inspired me. Uh, he's written a bunch of good books. Uh, I first got to him actually not through the lens of child education, but by a, a book he wrote called Punished by Rewards, which is a wonderful book that goes into both this idea of giving golden stars to kids who do well on tests or whatever, and giving monetary rewards to employees who ace some job. The whole idea of extrinsic rewards versus intrinsic uh, rewards and satisfaction. And then after I sort of discovered that book and I learned more about his philosophy, it was just uh, eye-opening. And it was eye-opening in the sense that I grew up again in Denmark and had, I went to school for like nine years in the public school system and then the high school and so on from there. But like that experience was already sort of pretty good. Uh, when I now see the accounts of what most schooling is in the U.S., how focused it is on everything from homework to to almost this sense that like, hey, your kid is in kindergarten. Have you guys thought about college yet? Do you know which activities that you should do to really uh, juice up in like, what, 12 years for your college application? Now, let me put you on the track just so you have the right extracurricular activities, just that you have to write everything. And then, by the way, let's get tutors right away. Just this whole notion that like childhood and, and elementary school and everything is just preparation for what a fancy college degree, rather than some of the most precious years of your life, your childhood, where you really form sort of these emotional foundational aspects of your personality, right? Should those foundational aspects of your personality be like stress about some test? Should they be like, why am I having a battle with my parents about homework? Or should they be like, hey, I really like going to school because today we're doing a fun project. Like, what the fuck do kids even need to learn for the first ninth grades? Nothing, right? Like who gets out after the ninth grade and like just don't know the basics of math or the basics of reading and writing? You have to be in a seriously deprived situation for that to be the case, which I mean, those cases also exist and they're totally tragic, right? But in a well-functioning school system, you don't need any of those things. Again, if we do the European comparison, the country that keeps topping sort of the international uh, educational scores is Finland. Finland does not start teaching its kids to read until they're seven years old. We seem, we basically got like sort of glances at our preschool for the fact that like our, what was he at that time, like five-year-old sort of wasn't already reading, right? Like there, there was this pressure that like, there was almost a competition, like who can get their kid to read at the youngest age? And I thought like, wow, isn't this a just encapsulation of American sort of aspirations, right? Gamification of the whole thing and comparison and all these other things where we can make each other feel shitty about the fact that our kids aren't reading at age five, right? What the fuck? And then, of course, the, the whole thing, too, is that it's just unscientific. You look at the reasons for why Finland doesn't start teaching kids to read until they're seven. And like there's all these studies on, yeah, you can teach a kid to read at an earlier age, maybe at age five. Some people even do it at age four. And what happens is they have a tiny initial lead over their peers. And then by, I don't know, grade four or five, not only does that lead level off, but it turns into, in several cases, sort of a, a dislike of reading because this wasn't the natural moment that these kids wanted to do that. Right. So it doesn't even work. Right. Like if the end product of schooling is that you come out on the other side is a well-balanced, well-educated, kind, considerate person. Yeah, we're going about it real wrong. <laughs> if the uh, approach is like, uh, this is some fight for the death, who can get into the best university? And then when you, who can be the top of their class? And then when they get out after having been the top of their class and having aced their university scores, then they can get to work for what? A fucking law firm? A fucking consulting company? Jesus Christ, what low aspirations in life to have that we should all be in a fight to the death to become the next McKinsey consultant. Like that is just bankruptcy of moral aspirations for an entire society. Life's a game. I'll beat you to the end. So I want to I wanna transition a little bit now. I know you talked about advocacy. I know you're big on privacy and the future of the internet. Spitball, where are we headed? What's broken and how can we fix it? There's sort of two answers to that. There's the answer I would have given like two years ago where it said we're hitting absolutely towards the abyss. I see no hope. Shit is going down and like, save yourself. <laughs> then there's the answer I'd give today, two years later, when I see these inklings of hope. I see these inklings of hope because I've been on these topics for quite a long time, talking about privacy and, and the dangers of, of big tech companies and so on. 
and no one gave a shit for just the longest time, right? Like if you go back through the archives of blog posts and so on, I've written for a very long time and like, I'm just screaming in the wind and like, everyone's like, what are you talking about? Google is like the best man. Or like Facebook is so awesome. I can connect with all my old school pals, right? Like there was just this, if you go back to like 2008, 2009, people are just enamored by the new technology and they go like, this is the best. And they don't see any of the downsides at all, right? Okay, uh, 2019, whew, that is thankfully not the case anymore, right? There's a shared sense of skepticism now, appropriate skepticism, overdue skepticism over the fact that like, hey, uh, I think we took a wrong turn about like 10 years ago here. And like, now we know where we ended up and I don't want to be here, right? Like it's a shitty place. Can we go back? Can, can we turn the, the, the wagon around and, and ride back 10 years and then try another path? I'm seeing that, right? Like some of that, of course, is just bias, right? Because I'm on Twitter and I keep getting positive reaffirmation by the people who believe the same things I do and they follow me and they tell me and, and we all talk to each other in our little circle here, right? So there's some of that, like the literal bubble of, of, of seeing these seeds, but I didn't even see the bubble before, right? Like before there wasn't even a bubble you could pop into and, and, and talk to. The bubble was so small, it could barely fit like five people around the table. Now it's pretty big. Now it can actually fit uh, a lot of people. And there's a lot of people who are skeptical about where we're going with, with privacy. Nonetheless, we're still absolutely on the wrong path. And we're going down the wrong path at a pretty good clip. And I don't know if we're going to find the right path. I don't know if we're going to fix it before it's eternally broken in a way where we can't find our way back. Where we end up, for example, with the kids, again, if we take that example, where we end up uh, raising a new generation who has been so abused in terms of their uh, privacy and their sense of self and their place in the world and, and everything else that they simply don't even know that there's another way, right? Like I'm, I'm 40. I remember the time before the internet, right? We, we're talking about uh, these generations where they remember they were sort of growing up in a time before the internet, but yet they, the internet arrived sort of early enough that they would feel native to it. Like, I, I fear that like that, um, I mean, it's every generation's lot to talk up their own um, <laughs> advantages or, or specialness in history. But nonetheless, that I fear that it is possible that we end up raising an entire generation of kids who just don't even see the problems because they don't imagine a time before you were surveillanced all the time, before companies knew all your secrets in a way that they could market to you based on those secrets, before parents and schools had total control over all your communication. So of course, why shouldn't government have control over my communications? Why shouldn't uh, corporations have uh, insight into all my innermost thoughts and fears? This is just natural because I've grown up in a time where like, hey, my parents did that to me and my school did that to me. So this is just the world that I know, right? Like that's a nightmare scenario to me. The sort of the positive scenario, the, the, uh, the hope is that because these kids grew up under such oppressive regimes, both from their parents, their schools and uh, companies, they choose another way. And again, I mean, we can cherry pick examples here, but just seeing the fact that like Facebook has no purchase on young kids, right? Like uh, no young kids is interested in that. Maybe that's just because that's where all the old geezers are and, and no one is interested in hanging out at the same time. But I think there's just there's other dynamics here of like how they're using Instagram and like how they're having separate accounts and so on. I think that there's some some promise there. But I think we're we're still undecided. I think absolutely possible but that Instagram we're just is still Facebook and so is WhatsApp. You no, know, no, absolutely not that these things are better, right? But that they but that the kids have better engagement with them. I mean, I'm 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 mostly speaking here out of hope, not out of statistical facts, right? Because you look at statistical facts and you go like, hey, well, 2.6 billion people are still on Facebook, right? Like I can shout until I'm blue in the face about the dangers and evils and sort of uh, misgivings I have about Facebook. But hey, it's still <laughs> it's still the 2.6 billion person gorilla in, in the room that dictates everything and is, is squeezing industry's dry is, is, is choking the internet and is, is choking people's sense of self and, and privacy. Like it's still going on, right? But I think that's the other thing is if you go back and look at some other historical trends and you got 19, what, 59 or 62, like they knew smoking was bad. Like some knew. How long did it take before we banned smoking in, say, bars and outside? Like what, mid 90s? Like it took a long time. So some of these things like you 
you discover that whatever's going on in society is, yeah, this is not good. We got to change it. And lo and behold, it takes fucking 30 years to fix it, right? I hope it doesn't take 30 years for us to fix the morass that we're in with social media and uh, targeted advertising right now. But that's possible. I'm very well possible that it'll take 30 years uh, or at least another 10 or 20 or whatever. That should not discourage us from the fight. Like if the scientists who are in the doctors who discovered in like 62 that smoking, holy shit, is really bad for you. Have you looked at these lungs? They're fucking full of tar. If they had just said like, it's too hard. Everyone smokes. Man, have you seen the smoking rates? Like uh, 80% of, I don't know, maybe it was even higher. I don't know what the peak of smoking rates were, but they were fucking high, right? Most people smoked. They smoked on airplanes. They smoked everywhere, right? To look at that society in that time and imagine it could be like it is today, where not only is it banned to smoke in in cars or taxis, in, in airplanes, in restaurants and so on, like it's like it's not um, uh, there's a general sense of like smoking is bad, right? Like society has really flipped on that topic. But if you were there in 62 and you had the knowledge, you knew it was probably pretty hard to make that imagination, right? And I think we're looking at the same thing on other things. You, you look at like climate change, right? You look at uh, uh, from the time that they were sort of definitively clear. What is that? Like late 80s, early 90s. They're like, holy shit, we're warming the planet. It's our fault. And it's going really quick. In that time between now and then, we've added like another the same amount of CO2 to the atmosphere, right? And right now we're not fixing it at all, right? You have Greta, you have a bunch of people making uh, a lot of passionate pleas and very reasonable arguments, we should change. And then you look at what the rates are and they keep going up, right? Like we keep poisoning the earth ever more. Hopefully that that's still, like you still have to have the faith, right? If you don't have faith that like we as a human species are able to learn as a collective, then, I mean, you might as well just shut the coffin and like uh, ask someone to to bang on the nail, right? So I refuse to give up that hope. I refuse to give up the hope that we cannot learn better ways of interacting with the internet, that we could not one day, for example, ban ads targeted on personal information, that we could not one day realize that this climate disaster that we're steering is terminal in the literal sense for our species and do something else. You have to keep that hope. If you don't, um, yeah. So let's play devil's advocate. Which of the two do you see being more likely to solving the problem? Governmental regulations or competitive capitalism? That almost sounds like a trick question. Because the only thing that fixes fucking anything at this level, at this level of complexity is, is regulation. Like competitive capitalism is wonderful for giving us a faster, cheaper iPhone, at least until someone captures a monopoly and stranglehold competition. Um, but it absolutely fucking sucks at any of the big societal uh, issues. Like if you want proper health care for your country, asking commercial forces to fix that. Yeah. Do you know what? The, the data is in. Didn't work. Doesn't work. If you want capitalism to fix climate change. Yeah. The data is in. Didn't work. Doesn't work. Right. So there's it, there's all these aspects where for a while, I think you could go. We were early enough in the capitalist experiment to go like, you know what? Science not in yet. Maybe trickle down works. Like maybe if we just give all the money to a couple of billionaires, they'll kind of spend it in ways where it'll end up in the pockets of everyone. And like now you go like, yeah, you know what? Mm, can't argue that anymore. Like this, the science is in. Right. And I think there's just a, there's a lot of the, those factors where you also just go like, hey, the U.S. is the only <laughs> Western industrialized country who does the whole, hey, let's try to solve healthcare through the marketplace, right? And it is by far and away the greatest failure in terms of public health in the comparison countries that compare. And then you compare to all these other countries who don't do it like this, right? And who have public healthcare systems or other ways of, of dealing with it. And you just go like, yeah, do you know what? <laughs> it's in, right? Like life expectancy, uh, price per, per person to, to solve these issues. Like the data is in. Um, again, in interesting. Sometimes. Facts. Interesting fact. So most people don't realize this. The third highest GDP per uh, basically, the third highest spend per citizen by the government on healthcare, the United States government. That's not including the individuals paying their massive premiums and paying all of the out of pockets. The U.S. Right. Go government, the the lib the capitalist healthcare system, is spending more than almost anyone else. And it's it's completely a, a utter failure, right? And why is it a, another failure? Because you look at it and you say, like, do you know what? If we hand something like healthcare, where this notion of shopping around, all the dynamics that make sort of competitive capitalist systems work very well for consumer goods, 
they just don't apply, right? I've been in that situation. I've been in the hospital, laying in a hospital bed, thinking for a while, do you know what? There's a chance this is the end. And as I was laying there in that bed, I was thinking, like, what would I pay to be out of this situation, right? And the answer was all of it. You can't have a rational discussion or you can't make rational capitalist choices when you're laying in that bed thinking, do you know what? This is pretty much the end. Or even worse, not you laying in that bed, but someone you care about, right? Like your kid laying in that bed. Not only would I give all of it, I would give more than all of it, right? I'd see one of my kids laying in a hospital bed and and think like, do you know what? If, if I could jump myself off a bridge and then that would save them. Oh, where's the bridge, right? Like it's just there's certain areas of human existence that just apply so poorly to that system that has worked so very well in a, a number of other factors, at least when properly constrained and regulated, right? That it's just, I mean, it just feels like it, it's so heartbreaking to see sort of thinking like, oh, capitalism is the one hammer. Let's just bang everything with it, right? Like, and we end up actually hitting people with hammers yeah. when it comes to healthcare and we're trying to use uh, capitalism to fix it. Blunt question, why are Americans stupid enough to believe it's possible? Because that, universally, I see the vast majority believe that this is some type of the solution that a free market system can solve. Yeah, I don't think it's about stupidity in its most literal sense as like lack of intelligence. No, it's not lack of intelligence. I think a lot of people are, are very intelligent and are still very wrong, right? It's a question of ideology. And ideology is this thing about like what you see and what you don't see, who's important, who's not important, what are our grand societal expectations and aspirations. And that ties into that first discussion we were having about education, right? If the greatest aspiration you could have for your child is for them to become a what? Fucking Goldman Sachs banker or a McKinsey consultant or whatever else shit they turn out of Ivy League universities. Yeah, you can kind of see how there might be other side effects to that level of aspiration, right? Like if your aspiration for your child isn't for them to be happy, fulfilled adults who may not make A, a lot of money or B, be success in some way that you can brag to your, I don't know, neighbors about, right? You could also see how uh, that could lead itself to other forms of dysfunction. And I think that that dysfunction is absolutely spilling into into this whole societal character structure. Um, one of the authors I've been most enamored with for the past couple of years is uh, a man named Eric Fromm, who has a wonderful book. Um, well, he has many wonderful books, but the one I got introduced to his writing through was Escape from Freedom. And it traces this history of uh, sort of all the way from feudalism, where we had this place in society, and that was just fixed, and that was what it was. And then all the way up through capitalism and this idea that we are responsible now for our own success. And that is both in, in certain ways, obviously very liberating, right? Like you don't have a feudal law lord telling you, well, you're just a stable boy and you will be a stable boy until the end of time. Now you have a society telling you, you can be whatever you want to be. You can fulfill your greatest dreams and all these things, right? And then when that doesn't happen, when you don't fulfill your greatest dreams, which, hey, true for most people most of the time, it is your fault. That is the flip side of this freedom, right? So anyway, this whole concept, I think Eric Fromm is a wonderful writer uh, on it. He has a bunch of other great books. To Have or To Be is another one that I think is a wonderful diagnosis of the American psyche. This uh, sense of, uh, as we've talked about, this ego satisfaction of having, right? Like, well, I am good because I have a successful business. I'm a serial entrepreneur, I have an expensive car, I have a cool watch or, or whatever, right? Versus I am a successful human being because I am continuously learning, because I am kind, because I like speak up when needs to do it. all these other aspects of sort of uh, sort of a human nature that are more internal and are more about who you are than what you have. Anyway, I think that that's a, a he's a great writer in this. He lived in the U.S. for for a while. And uh, he also uh, he was originally from Europe. I, I forget where Vienna or something. So he's just a, a great psychotherapist who's diagnosed or psychoanalytic person who's diagnosed sort of the caricature structure of different societies. And that taught me a lot about uh, sort of the difference and why it was and why some things were so clear to me as a Dane. I show up and, and sort of just look around like, hey, is no one else seeing that this is fucking batshit? Like, why, why aren't we all going crazy about this fact that like uh, people have to go on like a website to beg strangers for money such that they can get an operation they need to live? Like what? 
how, how is this a thing, right? And you just go like, eh, most people just don't see it. That's ideology, right? Like what they don't see, what doesn't even bubble up to their consciousness. And when you arrive with a different ideology, all those things are clear, right? And they're, they're just horrifying. And I mean, we've talked a bunch about education. We've talked about healthcare. The other one that just struck me when I arrived was the, the U.S. penal system. Like just the utter brutality that you can have the richest country in the world also be the country that jails the most people in the world and under such squalor conditions and in such blatantly racist and unfair ways. You just it just blew my mind when I arrived and started learning about how the American society is put together. And you just go like, is no one else seeing this? Like, how, how the fuck do we just like get up in the morning and, and we go to work and we go shop and like then we go home and like it just didn't occur to us that day or didn't enter our perceptions that day. Ideology, right? Like all the things you don't see, all the things that like a, a cultural character uh, shields you from having to face on a daily basis. Those are the things that stand out when you arrive with European sensibilities. And it's one of those things where like there are certainly days where I think, Jesus, ignorance would be bliss. If I just could, could I just borrow the American ideology and put it on just a fucking while to get a break? Because like, all this shit entering my consciousness is not goddamn fucking healthy. And I think that, that that's the other problem here is I've been here long enough now that like I can't just run away. Like people ask me this all the time. Oh, if you think U.S. is so shit, why don't you just go back to Denmark or something, right? Do you know what? If I go back to Denmark, the U.S. is still the U.S., right? Like I don't have a bad experience here you know, on a very personal, individualized, narcissistic level. Like The U.S. worked out great for me, right? If I was just thinking about me as an individual and the spoils that I was able to sort of uh, gather together. Hey, I travel back to Denmark. I go live in Spain. Do you know what? The misery is still here. I, I can't close my eyes again to it. I don't even know what the question was. <laughs> That's okay. You, um, you, you have a great way of talking. You should definitely have a podcast. You, um, <laughs> speaking of, what's the future of media? We've talked about the issues of advertising. We've talked about the issues of privacy, and that definitely ties in the two. Yeah, um, you're really taking all the heavy hitters today. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's either I'm, I'm taking them or you're setting them up and rolling with them. It's one or the other. Yeah, so media, um, it's one of those things where, again, I feel like the verdict is out. I think there's 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 times for me where I go like, do you know what? The Internet was a mistake. Like if, if the Internet was not there, like, again, you look at it at that broad level, right? Would human happiness and consciousness and sort of levels of anxiety? Would we be in a better place if the Internet did not exist? There are absolutely days where I think that's true. Then there are other, there are other days where I don't think that's true at all and that the Internet in large part is giving voice to people who didn't have a voice before and is bubbling up things of, of critical importance and so on. But when you look at where we're going with uh, a lot of Western societies right now, the US and the UK in particular, and you go like, what role did the media play in those um, sort of paths? Ah, it's not that easy. And then at the same time, we're also at the best of times, right? Like we have independent uh, journalists who, who don't let stories be squashed, right? Like, um, uh, I think Ronan Farrow, who who had the whole story with Me Too and so on, like was trapped inside a large media organization that was killing his story. Oh, fuck it, it, just took it somewhere else. I don't know. Is that is that a thing that's that's because of media is different these days? Maybe it's not. Maybe it is. I'm a big fan of journalism. I think actually journalism is is one of the things that gives me the most hope that there are people out there who are looking for. I mean, it's a hard word to use these days, but like the truth. Right. And they're not going to sit down and be quiet and they're going to keep digging until they find it. And sort of that sense of journalism is just inspiring. And then there are the people who aid those journalists, whistleblowers in particular. And I think like, holy shit, it's inspiring. I, I look at someone like Edward Snowden or Chelsea Manning or other examples of whistleblowers where you look, they risked so much for what? To tell us stuff, right? To tell us stuff that was wrong. That is fucking inspiring. Right. Like that is the, the, the stuff of heroes. That you go like, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to do this. It's going to have probably terrible consequences for me. You look at someone like Chelsea Manning and you're like, holy shit, the amount of uh, cruelty and outright torture she's actually been exposed to uh, through solitary confinement and so forth. And you go like, fuck, the, the sacrifice. And then you look at someone like Edward Snowden, who, who thankfully didn't get captured, but kind of sort of not by his own choice lives in Moscow, right? Like would prefer not to live there. Um, other issues with that. 
and you go like, goddamn, it's inspiring, and it's inspiring, and and gives me hope that like th- there is a we can do better, right? Like it's not inevitable. Like the NSA and whatever, they probably thought it was inevitable that they could keep all their programs secret and they could just spy on everyone around the world all the time, and like they'd get no pushback because everything was governed by secret co- courts and secret laws, and no one was going to find out. And then it's, all kind, of, it's no, all kind of fake pushback is the issue. So like people push yeah. back, but it's actually a slippery slope and. St- still goes in that direction. That's what scares me is every every next shooter, every little terrorist, okay, not little, but every terrorist incident. We never go backwards in terms of privacy. We never get right. more privacy back. We never take away power from like if you look at presidential power, every single yep. president ever yep. has either had the same or more power as their predecessor. Yeah, until you sort of have a revolution, right? I mean, I'm not exactly a Marxist revolutionary. <laughs> I mean, history is long. And like we have a very myopic view of, of it because we look at the last, what, few decades? Like that is an infinitely small amount of time in even just a span of human history, which is not exactly a long period of time either, right? But you look at um, absolute power used to be an absolute thing, right? And then some people got their heads chopped off and then it wasn't, right? Like things do change. Again, I'm absolutely not advocating for revolution. I mean, those have a tendency to turn out badly too. And even if, if you think that they turned out well, they usually turn out well like 200 years later. Like you're like, in the moment of the French Revolution, people getting their head chops off, you're like, yeah, I kind of regret it. And then you go 200 years later, hey, it wasn't my head getting chopped off. I didn't have any family members I can relate to that sort of got wrapped up in that. And like, hey, now we have some enlightenment ideas and we have other things about equality and solidarity and so on. Like, And, and that was nice, right? So I, I think humans, obviously, they're, they're present biased. They're biased towards the experiences they have from like the last 10, 20, 30 years because that was the time they were alive. It's kind of like the same thing as with our thoughts, right? We know our own thoughts so much better than the thoughts of others. And so we have this tendency to sort of put too much value on that in the grand scheme of things. And I think we have a tendency to think like, well, nothing can actually ever change, right? In fact, uh, one of uh, other books I'm a big fan of is uh, Francis Fukuyama has a series on political order and political decay, which traces actually the 5,000 year history of political order and political decay and the rise and fall of certain bureaucratic and political institutions and how they absolutely have changed if you just look over a longer period of time and how they've come and how they've gone, right? Or, or, I mean, I'm a big fan of Stoicism and you read about the ancient Rome, right? And you go like, do you know what? That ended. And then there was a very long period of time that looked nothing like ancient Rome, neither in terms of philosophy or sort of civic uh, institutions and so on. We went through a long phase, which is in many ways, incorrectly labeled the Dark Ages, right? Like they had other things going for them, uh, the Dark Ages, that is. But just that like, hey, things do change. So anyway, my point about Francis Fukuyama was that uh, he had a book called um, The End of History, which I think he wrote in like uh, either the 80s or 90s, where we were like, just the summary of like, here's someone who studied like history for 5,000 or political history for 5,000 years, right? Concluding essentially, yeah, all right, we're done. This is it. This is how it's going to be until the end of time. Yeah, and then it wasn't, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, again, just this this end of history notion, you look at uh, uh, Trump, right? Like everyone prior to that goes like, yeah, you know, I'd like it's just a boring precedent, like uh, one, same as the other, they just like cycle in and out. And then like, bam, oh shit, history different, Brexit, same thing, right? You go like, yeah, I mean, like uh, the people, let's just pretend they have a job. Ah, fuck, ah, right? And you go like, do you know what? History is still very much alive and it's very much not settled, which means it's very much up to us. And it can't go a different way. Cornell West has this, uh, I'm going to butcher it on it, but this great saying of like, do you have hope? Do you have optimism? And you're like, do you know what? Like, it, that's all up to us. Whether we have hope or whether we have optimism lies in our actions and our sense of uh, whether we're still alive, whether we still actually have an impact on history. And I think there's a lot of forces in society and the world at large who would very much like to convince us that we do not. And this is one of those things where even if I'm on the other side of the issues such as Trump or Brexit, do you know what? There's also some glimmers in that. And, and I know it's a dangerous territory to wade into given just how much shit is coming out of that, right? And not just shit like dangerous, absolutely uh, authoritarian, dark future, whatever that comes out of it. But there's also, you can look at it from a, a prism of some hope, right? That everything is on this smooth path. 
and nothing changes and then bam, there's a break. And then all of a sudden something changes. Tons of things didn't change, right? Like that's that's the scam, right? Like, oh, drain the swamp. Oh, let me double down on the swamp or like uh, get out of wars. Oh, let me double down on a defense budget. That's not what, 760 billion a year and just gets rubber stamped every year in Congress, right? There's, there's all these there's sort of the scams of it. But there's also these glimmers. U.S. politics, for example, you look at someone like um, AOC, right? Like just as one example. Was that a thing that was going to happen if there if the Trump thing hadn't happened? Maybe. Hopefully. I'd like to believe that. But I also do think that there is some sense when there's this break in, in continuity, right? Like the story is on, on this even line and then all of a sudden there's a break in the story and people go like, oh shit, the story can fucking break? Well, what else can break? What else can we throw apart? You, you go on, on the progressive side and you, you look at someone like Bernie Sanders and you go like, fuck, that man has been for 40 goddamn years saying exactly the same things, right? You take a clip from Bernie 82 and you're like, this, wait, didn't I just hear that slogan last week? Yes, you did. Because he's been very consistent on what he wants and how he wants to fix society. And then for 40 years, it was like, yeah, who's this crackpot, right? Like, okay, he gets to be a whatever, senator or something. But no real influence. And then all of a sudden, the pendulum swings in his fucking direction. And all of a sudden, he stands with the goddamn pendulum in his hand and is like swinging on it uh, jolly, right? Um, hey, time came to me. And again, this is one of those things that I felt the miniature version of that we've for so long have spoken about. Essentially, it doesn't have to be crazy at work or how we work or aspirations or these other things. Like for 10 years on a lot of these topics, it felt like we were talking to like a, a room with uh, uh, with like what, two rats and a, and a donkey or something. Like no one was interested. Right. And then all of a sudden, hey, the room is full of new people and they're interested. Our message didn't really change in most regards, but the times did. Um, so that, again, gives me hope. And again, now I've lost what the question was. <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And once it's really broken, you can at least realize you got to try to fix it. Yes, yes, yes. That's what yes, we got to yes. hope for. Yes, I, I think that, the, and this is a, a key thing where, again, I'm wading into sort of explosive territory here. But there's some we've people- we've been doing who, that the whole time, don't worry. Yeah, but um, even more explosive. There's some people who look at the Trump thing and think, oh shit, if we could just get Obama back. Oh man, the Obama years were amazing. If we could just get Obama back, everything would be right as rain. Everything would be fixed. And do you know what? Sometimes you have to make things work to worse to make them better. And I think that's absolutely the case here. If you just had had another essentially Obama, nothing fundamental would have changed. You look at the fundamental changes society has gone through through his eight years of presidency. As you said, was anything rolled back in terms of the Patriot Act? It was no. rolled forward, not rolled back. Exactly. Was anything rolled back in terms of like drone wars? No, rolled forward. Did anything truly change in terms of uh, healthcare? Yeah, for a few people, for some time. But was that a fundamental structural reorganization? No, right? There's just, you can look at all these things where you go like, he was a great president. Yeah, in the sense of like wrapping the shit cake that we have over here in presentable wrappings. And now you have like Trump essentially tearing that wrapping off and going like, hey, here's the fucking shit cake, eat it. And you go like, yeah, sometimes you have to make things better. Again, very easy for me to say, right? I'm not personally sort of under any direct consequences from this being a total fucking shit show, except psychologically. But like there, there are people where like, yeah, it's easy for you to say to make it better like, or make it worse. It's getting worse for me right now and it totally fucking sucks. Fully accept that, right? And this is one of those things where, as we were talking about, the people who best appreciate, let's say, the French Revolution, they probably weren't the people who were around at the time of the French Revolution. It was the people who were around a little later than that, where you can go like, you know what? That was a break in history that was for the better. Sort of venal offices and, and absolutist power and monarchies and so on. Like, they were not great. And maybe you needed something also that was also not great to, um, to kind of put history on a different track. I think that's the best case outcome here. Like, you got to hope for that, right? Because if we live through this entire fucking phase of increasing authoritarianism and nastiness and like there isn't a break in history after this right like then it truly was for nothing and we go back we're in trouble nihilism and pessimism and like holy shit everything just doesn't mean anything and it's just going to shit right like that's a bad place to be too yeah i think the u.s is a lot like rome right now in its trajectory and we can go one of two directions and we gotta hope after things break they go the right way and not the wrong way well i think the, the rome comparison i think is interesting not just because like hey we're at the end or, or whatever but like Hey, Rome totally fucking sucked for most people who lived in Rome. The vast majority of inhabitants of Rome, even at the height of its glory, were fucking slaves, right? So I think that this is this is the other good parallel here is that like Rome at its best was awful to the majority of people in Rome. And I think that this is the 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 parallel that works very well for the US, right? Like 
the U.S. as its most hopeful, let's say 2008, we just elected Barack Obama and whatever, right? Like it was awful and it didn't get better for the vast majority of people who lived there, right? Again, notwithstanding, there are people where it did get better and blah, 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 right? Actually, I shouldn't say blah, blah, blah. That's just missing. It was better. And there are certainly people who are worse off in ways that are very personal to them, right? But if you zoom out, and that's very easy again to do when it's not your shit that's getting literally fucked up, right? You can start to draw some of these parallels and, and you can think like, you know what? Even the best of Rome was probably not a republic worth keeping. The fundamental change that needed to happen in human society. Like if Rome had just endured from now or for, uh, from then until now, Holy shit, what a, that would not be good, right? Like, <laughs> it would be great for the people in togas who had slaves and could uh, loaf around all day living off the pillages of empire. Again, plenty basically, of power. It would basically be end Rand. <laughs> yes, uh, very, very well for, for the people who could just call everyone else a, a, a moocher, right? Not so well, again, for sort of the total sense of human well-being on a, on a broader scale. I think that's a that's a good place to start to wrap things up. This has been a this has been an interesting one. I think I already got the title. It's going to be something like David Hanemeyer Hansen uncensored on education, healthcare, privacy, the government, the future, <laughs> everything. I want to I want a quote from you or a piece of advice. Actually, what's the best piece of advice you ever got and why from who? Memento Mori. Remember that you must die. And I think that piece of advice which is floated around in, in different saying memento mori is just the one that sounds the coolest. But this notion that life is going to end and now the sort of stoic perspective, it is long enough if you know how to live it well. So the secret that you have to uncover is to figure out how to live that life well. There's going to be, what, 70, 80, 90 years, should you be so lucky that you are in here? That passes by relatively quickly. And it's like, I'm 40. I'm halfway through, right? And I am not interested in prolonging that. There's a bunch of people in Silicon Valley that are like, oh, what if I could upload my brain into the computer and I could live forever? Fuck that. I want to die when the end is there. I mean, I want to die right now. I feel like, yeah, halfway through. Sounds about right. I have about half left. That gives me so much daily inspiration and motivation not to waste the time that is left on bullshit, right? And the bullshit is mostly personal bullshit. Me wasting my time on the trivial aspects of life that I would not look back upon when there's, what, 10 years to go and think, oh man, I really spent my time well there, didn't I? I really spent time better at the office. I really put in those 80 hours, right? Like I have uh, three kids now and there's nothing like literally sort of making the next generation to make you realize just how important it is well, first of all, for the older generation to die, right? I think there's a lot of societal changes that simply will not happen until some of the people who sit on all of it die. And I include myself in that, right? And also just the, the motivation it brings to spend those hours well. Like I, and this is why I'm so fired up often about the bullshit and pushing back against this ideology of workism that entrepreneurs and others, they, they should be dedicating their, their life just to work. That it is, it is so sure a path to regret that it just seems infuriating that so many people can get to platform that uh, position without more serious pushback. That we as a society are so wrapped up in like our applause for like the people who quote unquote made it, right? Without looking at their chance of regret when they stand at the end. So I think about that every day. I think about it every day that like, not only that death will come in its sort of predicted place when, I don't know, I get to life expectancy or, or thereabouts, but that it could come tomorrow. So this is one of the things that disabused me of this notion that, that like, well, I can just compress my life. I mean, this is one of the things I push back on all the time. Like, people should just spend their 20s working really hard, not wasting their time on friends or hobbies or whatever, because then by the time they're 38 and their startup goes IPO, then they can really sit back and enjoy the spoils, right? First of all, it's not how it works. Second of all, it's not how happiness works. Third of all, the odds of it happening for you, it's not going to happen for you, right? Odds are you're going to end up 38. It didn't happen. You look back and you think like, Jesus, these were two of the most important decades of my life. They're gone and I regret it and I'm not going to fucking get them back, right? So remember that you must die and take that lesson every morning and look yourself in the mirror. That's, I mean, one of Steve quote, uh, Jobs quotes is like, he looks at himself in the mirror every morning and he thinks like, if I look myself in the mirror in the morning and I think like, fuck. Is that happens too many days in a row? Something's got to change. Now, not everyone has the luxury and privilege to make those changes, but a lot of people do, and still they aren't. 
And that's a tragedy. Yes, it is. David, thanks for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. We've been everywhere. Where's the best place for people to learn more about you and what you do? I used to instinctually just say Twitter because I spend a lot of time on Twitter. But now I feel like I almost have to give like a parental guidance or a content warning because my Twitter is... Um, I'm pretty sure we I, got I, the parental warning from this. <laughs> you dropped yeah, I, the I, most I, F-bombs I, of any stoic I've ever heard. I, I, this is a good point. If you made it through this entire podcast and you're not like, holy shit, I need like uh, a couple months off from this depressing shit. Just follow me on Twitter and you can get a steady stream of much of what we just talked about for an hour every day delivered to your feed. Just one piece of advice. Uh, if you do subscribe to at DHH, mix it up. Mix it up with some kittens. Mix it up with some, some meme happy accounts. People. Find some happy people because I will not be that happy people. And you know what pisses me off more than anything is when people show up in my feed asking me to be happy. That's when you get fuck you, right? No, I'm not designing this feed for you. This is my therapy session. I am just inviting 360,000 of my closest internet friends to listen to me go through therapy. And if you're not interested in a therapy session for me, it's not a therapy session for you necessarily. Um, you should not subscribe. But at DHH, and then also, I guess I'm supposed to plug my business. So Basecamp.com, that's what I do for work. That's what gives me the spoils to contemplate the uh, oppressiveness of life and um, consider uh, death uh, every morning. So um, is that a good commercial? I, I don't think so. <laughs> it's, it's decent. If, if people have made it through this point, I'm pretty sure it's a good commercial. All right. This was fun. Thanks, David. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, disruptors.fm, be sure to subscribe. Share this around with a friend. I bet you have never heard a podcast episode like this one. If you have, I would be shocked and say hey to, say hey to David on Twitter. Cheers, guys. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoy this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us, and if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message, and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact. 